Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose for another installment of Town Pub. Uh, I get lazier with these introductions every week. There's some people here and today we're going to laugh at history's most stupid crimes uh, and they're brilliant because you've been feeding me sort of tasters of what you've got and we're not really talking about anyone famous at all this week we're talking about just utter shithousery of the highest order i love it so clive's here you're right clive i'm very well apart from my facial eyewear falling off yeah clive looks like he's been in a fight because his glasses are broken but he looked like stevie wonder when he first came on because he had black sunglasses on but you've now got the sellotape out I know, it's, it's a very, very tasteful, classy pe- bit of a adjustment there. Uh, James is missing the football to be watching this. In fact, he's actually not even wearing a Villa shirt right now. It's still nil-nil, James. I've got it on in the corner of my eye. Yeah, I thought I'd focus on this and rather watch the football. And I know if I watch it, I'll end up jinxing it like last time. So, Mate, you can't yeah. this. It's <laughs> awful. It's bloody <laughs> awful. Beth is loving the hot weather. Her husband's cut her hair, but amazingly, it looks brilliant. You're right, Beth? Yeah, all good, thanks. As we know, it's been a busy week, so uh, yeah. Yeah, we've slowed really time. Note to self, next time, don't get drunk and decide to start a World War One commemoration <laughs> organisation at like 10 o'clock in the evening when you've had loads of gin that day. I can't believe the response. I like pe- a few <laughs> people are like, well, I don't know if those, uh, there's even room for it. And it's like, we've, We've got nearly two grand in a bank already, haven't we? And all these people and like a magazine and yeah. It's been fantastic. No more gin for me is the moral of the story there. Uh, Kit's back with us. You all right, Kit? I'm doing all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell Kit's secret about <laughs> tomorrow night. Yeah, no, don't. That'll just, yeah, this is, <laughs> we're recording on a Thursday, definitely. We, yeah, we will joke about this next week, yeah? <laughs> when it no longer matters. Andy's here in Dublin, you right, Andy? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Yeah, yeah, how's, how's Ireland? Uh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent enthusiasm there. Johnny's here to judge, you right, Johnny? Cracking, mate, cracking. As usually, was late in the last one here. What was for dinner? Sea bass, roasted fennel and new potatoes. Ooh, awesome. Very pleasant. I know, I love it. I saved my most middle-class dinner for... The purposes of doing <laughs> yeah. this podcast, just so it, 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 it's a self-fulfilling prophecy now. Clive is like obviously thrilled that you're back because he thinks you've got a vendetta against him. It's great, hilarious. He does. He doesn't think. He knows. Holmes, <laughs> what have we got on the wall behind you? Is that bacon bits? It's uh, bacon fries this week. Bacon fries yeah. this week. 
Uh, what you're drinking? What's your craft beer recommendation for this week? Um, it's Tiny Rebel Shakedown Mango Vermont IPA at the moment. Excellent. Did you see someone who put on a rainbow sherbet one? I can't. Was it Pete Ball? Or was it Mike? He might have been. There's a, there's a few around. There's a, a bit of a sh- like sherbet. Yeah, I had one a couple of weeks ago. Do you think even you might be persuaded to try that? I was like, oh, maybe. Yeah, possibly. Maybe. At this point, I'll fucking drink anything. I'm so fed up with COVID-19. <laughs> uh, John's with us in Atlanta. Are you still under house arrest, John? You know, I've got one more day, and then I'm uh, officially out of quarantine. We tested everybody except the dogs, and we're all negative. So I get to go back to the office tomorrow, but I get to stay here and enjoy this very uh, Irish-like weather outside. I can almost see the cars on the street uh, for all the rain. Oh, and uh, so I'm just sitting here, uh, you know, having a drink with you guys, pretending that it's all sunny. Ethic. Yeah, no, no offense. It's like 30 degrees here and we're having a great time. But you get hot weather all year round, so we're not at all sorry. Oh, it's, it's, uh, we get uh, two seasons, uh, summer and uh, New Year's, and New Year's doesn't come around every year. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty warm. Brilliant. Uh, you jest, but as soon as you aren't the most toxic flakes on the planet, um, <laughs> politically as, yeah. well, as well as disease oh, yeah. ridden, I'm going to come and visit you. I miss America. Oh, stupidity doesn't just uh, is not limited to criminals here, or at least yeah. not uh, <laughs> the kind of criminals we're talking about today. Well, I think we just are talking about a criminal, aren't we? Just unconvicted. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just unconvicted. <laughs> uh, right, okay. Uh, Zach's with us. Hey, Zach. Oh, how is Southampton? Uh, it's all right. Um, nobody's sort of started streaming yet now that we're sort of almost allowed out of the bubble. After your manic, so, manic Waterloo week, have you just been sitting there staring at the walls now? It's been really weird. I've been going on Twitter and I'm literally that gif of, is it Reservoir Dogs where the guys kind of look around going like, what, what the hell's going on? Why, why isn't anything <laughs> happening? <laughs> is that you? It's literally me. Pulp fiction, Lena, if I remember rightly. Alina has had a crap week so far. We both have. Had a crap week so far. Yeah, both of our weeks is just, just, just. But at, yeah. least, at least your dog doesn't stink now. No, he is. Well, uh, earlier they decided to run through the mud in the back garden, traipse it through the house, so um, threw them back under under the what you call it uh, hose, not the hose. What's it called? Shower head. That's the one. So yeah, they're back and clean again. But for how long? Right. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's do histories stupidest crimes uh some of these are brilliant oh, i don't even know where to go first i know you've all got anecdotal ones as well as your actual ones uh let's go to john let's start with you this week let's start in the u.s all right um we've got uh a rich history in the united states of trying to outdo the rest of the world in a lot of things whether it's uh debt level spending, uh, political uh, zaniness, uh, you know, we're, we're going to try to do it better. And we've, we've made some uh, great inroads on criminal stupidity. Uh, as they say over here, the police say we don't catch the smart ones. And I'd like to talk about a couple of them that, uh, that, that really go above and beyond the call on, uh, in, in imbecility. Uh, the first one is not not too far back in ancient memory. It happened in 2015, but I love it because it just shows you a almost perfect storm of, uh, uh, of nonsense. Uh, three teenagers in St. Peter's, Missouri, 
were arrested for breaking into a house of an old lady, and they stole a number of things. They stole an Xbox set. I'm not sure why the old lady had an Xbox set. Uh, they stole some, uh, a few, few minor uh, personal items, as well as a box that had some jars that was apparently cocaine. Uh, they got the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, three thieves, a 17-year-old and two younger, uh, younger uh, uh, boys, uh, stole several items. They got out into the car. They drove over to the house of one of them and uh, took a, either a sniff or a taste of the jar of cocaine and spit it out because it just didn't taste like they expected. What was actually in the jar were the ashes of the old woman whose house they robbed, as well as two of her dogs. Uh, so they dumped they dumped the ashes out on the uh, uh, out on the driveway, uh, and then obviously the evidence there blew away. They went home and what they went to the house of one of the thieves, hooked up his Xbox, and Xboxes they did not realize have specific IP addresses that are not that difficult to trace. So it did not take the police long to arrest them and charge them not only with stealing the Xbox, but with stealing the ashes of what turned out to be the grandfather of two of the thieves. They actually snorted their grandfather's ashes. Uh, so, uh, you know, while you can have stupidity, um, young boys thinking that a, a burial urn is a Coke stash for a grandma, um, it's not often that you get the coincidence of the uh, grandfather being the deceased that they uh, snorted up <clears throat> and then unceremoniously deposited on the uh, driveway like it was a scene from the end of The Big Lebowski. So uh, that was one that, that really just sort of called out to me as, as pure stupidity. Um, in terms of just historical uh, imbecility, the best and famous of the American uh, crimes in, in that, in sort of the why did you think that would work category, occurred during the Old West in October of 1892. The Dalton gang, a gang of uh, three Dalton bro brothers of the Dalton family, uh, had been robbing banks and, uh, and trains around Oklahoma during the early 1890s. They were be they'd become notorious bank robbers and uh, fairly successful. So in their success, as in any good Greek tragedy, uh, hubris got the better of them, and they decided to make history by rob successfully robbing two banks across the street from each other at the same time. The problem was they had been relatively famous at that point, and uh, townspeople in the Old West typically were well-armed, like they are today. Uh, the, the two of the Dalton brothers, Bob and Emmett Dalton, headed into the First National Bank, while other, uh, other members of their gang went into the Condon Bank across the street. That's Condon, not with an M on the end. <laughs> um, they, uh, they should have been wearing more protection, however, than they did, because the townspeople, uh, one of them noticed who was going into the bank. Uh, the bank teller in one of the banks used that old tried and true story of, I'm sorry, sir, the vault is on a time lock, I can't open it. And that delayed the Dalton brothers long enough for townspeople to gather around the front and back of the banks. Uh, two of the brothers, uh, Bob and Emmett, came out of the First National Bank. They were met with a hail of gunfire. They ran out the back door, and the other uh, and townspeople were covering that and cut them to pieces. The other uh, bank robbers across the street 
heard the gunfire, tried to get into an alley behind the bank, but were also met by a posse of townspeople waiting for them. End result, the entire gang was shot to pieces, all except one of them were killed, uh, laid out, and you can uh, Google the, the pictures of them in their coffins. And uh, the one who uh, survived was uh, shot to pieces, went to a hospital for a while, and then served a long time in, uh, in uh, prison. Eventually, after about 14 years, he got out of prison, and he landed a uh, uh, job in Hollywood as a screenwriter for early 20th century movies. So he was able to parlay his survival of one of the most imbecilic and, and poorly planned uh, bank robberies in Old West history into a, uh, a nice little Hollywood job. Wow. <laughs> Holmes, any questions? Yeah, I mean, presumably, you said that they were famous, John. They've done this a number of times before. Did they actually need the money? Did they need to do this? Or was it more that the thrill is in the carrying out the crime, so to speak? Uh, back then, um, famous and really, really, really wealthy were, um, were not always synonymous. Uh, they were notorious for their stick-ups. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it wasn't like they were loaded at that time. They tended not to... Uh, yeah, they, it's not like they were putting their money into um, uh, oil trust stocks at that point. So yes, they, they were still going after that next heist, just like in a lot of Hollywood movies. One more and we're done. Um, in this case, that proved true, or, uh, true, but not in the way they expected. But also, I mean, I just imagine queuing up. If that bank was anything like mine, they'd be going, well, have you thought about going to an automated robbing position, sir, over there rather than uh, actually letting you actually get to the counter? But um, Maybe not. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, there, our our American West had a history of uh, banks being hard targets, uh, at least until, except for maybe the out of the the way ones of the 1930s that Bonnie and Clyde robbed. Uh, the James Jesse James gang. He was later played by Brad Pitt. Uh, their bank, their their uh, gang tried to rob a uh, a bank in Northfield, Minnesota, in the 1870s. Uh, similar result, they got uh, shot up, all but two of them, Jesse and his uh, brother Frank, uh, were either captured or killed. So uh, those were hard targets, and I don't think they were very well considered at the time these, uh, the Dalton brothers uh, planned their, what turned out to be their last ride. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't the people in the banks have had guns? Would there not be some sort of security type thing? Um, you know, the accounts that I've read did not mention anyone trying to pull a gun. Typically, they are, you know, when you're outgunned, you just sort of comply, I think, then as now. Uh, this was one of those more unusual instances where they were recognized going in and word got out and the uh, townspeople didn't want to put up with, uh, with their shit. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Johnny? The, the, the three teenagers uh, thing was, was just intriguing because, it, it, as, as you were saying it, I was just thinking, have I seen this in a Cheech and Chong film at some point? <laughs> it's just it, not it just, a good advert for Missouri, is it? It, it just it just sort of reminded me of of exactly that. But um, right, but right, if, Lo loading up the big uh, spliff. Uh, yeah, it's like I've got some good stuff here. This is great. <laughs> it's granddad. Um, yeah, I mean, on that one, surely the, the elephant in the room here is. Didn't one of them recognize that they were in a house that was slightly familiar to them? <laughs> well, uh, well, you know, I've, I've got to think that in, in the, the accounts, there, there weren't that many because uh, it was a very open and shut case. And the two, two minors 
Uh, over here, we seal up all the records. You can't find out that the 18-year-old uh, you just hired to work had been uh, a multiple felon, uh, you know, before he turned 18, uh, depending on what age, could be 17, could be 16, but usually it's 18 when they try them as adults. Uh, I suspect the reason that they're, that the real target, given their ages and that they were boys, was probably that Xbox set. Um, and he probably knew that this was in grandma's house. Um, he just didn't realize that uh, grandma had uh, had grandpappy uh, cremated. Um, didn't, didn't the other two wonder why there was a photo of him at his high school prom on the mantelpiece? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I suspect they, that this was, they figured it was an inside job. They just didn't realize uh, how, how inside that uh, uh, that jar of cocaine, and as if as if a grandmother would keep a big jar of cocaine. Um, I, I I mean I've I've never kept a stash of cocaine, but usually I don't have a uh, an Al Pacino size Scarface jar. Um, <laughs> so uh, you've not met my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I mean the only question about the Daltons, I it's I think if if we're, if we're we're some way into the, the, the business of, of judging now. And I think if we're, if we're going on the criteria of stupidity, it sounds more sloppy than stupid. It's, they, got, they got cocky and, and that was it, their it, downfall. It it's was, missing a degree of slapstick, isn't it? Which is something we're looking for here. <laughs> it, it does have uh, a high body count and uh, was uh, something that you, you could say was uh, a problem in the execution um, probably a, more of a problem of due diligence prior to the uh, crime itself. Something I've failed on many times. Uh, excellent. Thank you, John. Brilliant. Um, I love those. Thanks very much, John. Let's go to, well, who should I pick on next? Let's do Zach next. Zach looks ready to go. Hey, so I've chosen Captain Thomas Blood who some of you might um, think of as Colonel Thomas Blood, but as I'm going to explain, he was a self-styled colonel. So he, he was actually at best a captain, um, but as he became more and more famous, he kind of promoted himself. So he's effectively that kind of sixth, 17th century equivalent of the guy that everybody knows down the pub. He likes to exaggerate what his job title actually is, pretending he's like the CEO of a company to um, to uh, impress his date from actually what he, actually, what he really does in the company is make the tea. Um, and as far as I can make out, he seems to be responsible for sort of the original Grand Theft Auto. Um, he was a serial conspirator. He was involved in a plot to try and seize Dublin Castle in 1663, but it turned out that one of the leading conspirators in that plot was actually a government spy, which was a pretty fundamental failure. In 1666, he was involved in a plot to try and overthrow the restored monarchy, which was backed strangely by the Dutch government, primarily because of the war between the British um, monarchy and the Dutch at the time. But it turns out that he may have been a double agent in that plot and have been in contact with the government and might have been involved in attempts to um, capture the regicide Ludlow. He was involved in two ambushes. Um, one in which his friend, a Captain James Mason, um, who was on trial, was freed. That was in July 1667. And a second to try and kill the Duke of Ormond, who he seems to have had a bit of an issue with, um, because Ormond was one of the people who was meant to be offed in the process of the Dublin Castle plot that never ended up actually happening. 
Um, and on that one, they did manage to capture Ormond. They stuck him on a horse, but because Ormond struggled, um, he managed to uh, make the horse fall over. And so whilst he was on the ground, they tried to shoot him and they managed to miss. So he doesn't seem to have been particularly competent at any of these things. But what I want to talk to you about is what he's famous for, which is the 1671 attempt to steal the crown jewels from the Tower of London. Now, security back then obviously isn't anything like it was today. Um, the, the jewels were kind of guarded, if you like, by an elderly assistant keeper, a guy called Talbot Edwards, who lived in a room above the vault where they were kept. And he was allowed to make money on the side by casually letting people in to see the crown jewels. Um, through a railing, it should be said. Um, but he, he basically made money from selling tickets to curious visitors. In April 1671, a Dr. Aliff and his wife visited. And his wife, very suddenly and conveniently, whilst viewing the crown jewels, became ill, inverted commas, um, and had to recover in Edward's apartment. They became friendly um, on account of Edward's kindness. And Aliff very quickly, for no obvious reason, suggested a match between Edward's daughter and his own nephew. Now, Aliff was none other than Captain Thomas Blood. Um, a match was very quickly agreed. The whole thing, of course, was a, a sham. And when it came to the wedding day on the 9th of May, 1671, he turned up early at 7am um, at the tower. And were five conspirators in total, including Blood, who was Aliff, and his son, who was posing as this nephew who was supposed to get married to Edwards's daughter. While they were waiting for things to kind of sort themselves out, Blood suggested that his associates should have a quick look at the crown jewels. Why not? Because you're in town. So as soon as they got into the room, they bound Edwards, who, when he struggled, was smacked over the head with a wooden mallet. And blood. Um, they seized the crown jewels. Blood decided that because the crown was bulky, it needed to be hidden. And so he took a wooden mallet to the crown, smashed it down so it would fit underneath his travelling bag. His son hadn't thought through the fact that the scepter was too long to hide in the bag that they'd brought with him. So their solution was to try and file the scepter in half. Um, and then another of the conspirators decided that the best place to hide the orb was down his loose-fitting breeches, which was a whole new slant on that euphemism about the crown jewels. The trouble was, they hadn't hit um, Edwards hard enough, and he regained consciousness, and despite being stabbed, raised the alarm. At some point, his son also seems to kind of burst into the room, discover what was happening, and also raised the alarm. So between the two of them, they start screaming, literally, murder, um, and it all starts to go wrong. So Blood and his conspirators leg it. Blood and um, one of them manage to reach their horses. Um, but as they're riding off, one of them manages to crash into a cart. So there's your, your slapstick moment for you. <laughs> um, they're so busy trying to escape that they, they just, I mean, I crash a horse into a cart, but never mind. Um, when he was captured, though, Blood was totally unfazed and he demanded to see the king in person um, when he was interrogated. And to everyone's astonishment, King Charles II agreed. Um, it was probably actually engineered by Charles's advisers, um, especially the Earl of Arlington, who was the Secretary of State at the time. 
Uh, and it's thought because of this possible double agent connection that there might have been something going on. It might even have been an inside job to try and um, basically fence the credentials or to kind of reclaim them through insurance. So kind of an early insurance, if you see what I'm saying. In the interview, um, Blood is alleged to have confessed to both of the ambushes that he'd committed and claimed to have been involved in a plot to assassinate Charles II by sniping at him with a musket whilst he bathed in the Thames. Now, if any of you know anything about musket accuracy, the, <laughs> you wouldn't shoot somebody in the middle of the Thames because you wouldn't get anywhere near them. It just wouldn't happen. Also, um, why would you be having a bath in the Thames at that point in history? Kit, you're the science man. How filthy was it? Uh, the Thames was gross. I mean, around the Tower of London particularly, it was basically an open sewer. Um, and there are there are cases. Uh, I mean, they had a zoo there and things like that, and all kinds of stuff they were throwing in that that particular stretch of Thames. It was horrible. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. Go on, Zach. Um, so blood was pardoned for everything, and more than that, he was given um, a grant of land in Ireland worth five hundred pounds a year. Uh, <laughs> it's probably all connected towards kind of an effort um, to foster religious tolerance it's around the time of the Declaration of Indulgence in March 1672 um, and it's also thought that Blood might have had information on the nonconformist Edmund Ludlow um, and so there might have been some kind of deal struck there um, and his bizarre career didn't end there he was employed as a spy despite all of the publicity surrounding what he'd done he was employed as a spy um, in the 1672 war against the Netherlands and was sent to go and spy on the Dutch, even though he was kind of the model equivalent of a celebrity. So I don't think it quite <laughs> equates to um, stealing your granddad's ashes and trying to snort them, but it's, it's still pretty, um, pretty bizarre. I love that, what, so people were just supposed to not recognise him while he was pretending to be a spy? Yeah, exactly. One of the most famous people in the country by that time, massively reported that in the papers. And people weren't meant to realise who he was. Uh, Zach, <laughs> John would like to know if that's a royal orb in your pocket, if you're just pleased to see him. <laughs> uh, Holmes, any questions? Yeah, was it, uh, presumably he was in the army, despite the confusion over, or the exaggeration over his actual rank. During the Civil War, he, it's not actually clear if he fought for, the, for Parliament or for the Royalists during the English Civil War. The, the accounts seem to conflict. Um, there is reference of a Captain Blood. It's um, suggested that Prince Rupert might have personally vouched for him, Prince Rupert, the Royalist Commander, um, and that he might have served under um, Prince Rupert at some point. But it's he certainly was never a colonel. Um, so, yeah, it's an odd one. And at times he seems to have said that he fought for Parliament and, and seems to have had kind of political sympathies for Parliament. And then when he was brought before Charles, he claimed to be a royalist. Um, so it just a bizarre man. I'm not sure he even knew what his and, rank was or who he fought for. And then the, the crown that was smashed up, is that the one that we can, in theory, see today? I think so. Um, because the, the original crown jewels were lost, weren't they? Um, in fact, a few of them have been lost because they were pawned during the Civil War itself. Isn't that right? 
I, I have no idea. I'm at, well out of my depth here. Okay, who's the most likely person to know? John, you've covered broad swathes of history with War Queens. Any idea? Uh, none at all. Um, I love it. There's like ten historians in the room, and none of us have got a fucking clue. Anyway, moving swiftly on. I'm pretty sure the originals were lost by John in. Is it the Humber Estuary? Oh yeah, another... yeah, I remember that. that. That's the lion in the Disney. That was the wash. Yeah, I love the one. So, in the wash. Okay. So the, the, and the my final question: the only way like you can see them there, there wasn't a, like there is now where everyone can see them. You have basically to go up to Edwards and he'll sort it out for you. Exactly. You just drop him a, a few shillings and, and or whatever. I'm not sure what the fee was. But you pay him some money and he lets you in. I mean, that's quite, that's quite short-sighted. They've lost out on thousands of pounds worth of fridge magnet sales going back there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's hard for me to, to track that pedigree because over here, obviously, we don't have uh, crown jewels. We've just got uh, Trump's collection of photos of models that he's uh, done. So yeah. <laughs> Now, hang on. I have seen Nicolas Cage steal the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> good point good point and, he, t and he, he peeled the treasure map off the back yeah that was a, a very good documentary and we all enjoyed it very much <laughs> I, I, I think we know one of the uh, historians who was uh, tapped to uh, to be interviewed for that oh really no I, w I was I was joking about our our friend who uh, you, you ranted about uh, yeah. <laughs> I was I was gonna say yeah it was uh, Johnny any questions um, there's a lot to unfold here. While you were you were telling the tale, I, I just had this kind of vision of, of Benny Hill following them with a lot of scantily clad nurses <laughs> and, and the, the theme tune playing in the background. It was that sort of comedic. Um, he, I, I mean, he does particularly should be, as, as you alluded to at the beginning, he just sounds like a bit of a bullshitter that got his got in out of his depth, as far as I can gather. Um, so I, whether, whether you categorise him as truly stupid or, or just someone who, who just, just reached, reached the limit of his ability, it's the Peter principle really, isn't it? It's kind of, he got to a certain point and then exceeded, he exceeded his abilities by some considerable amount um, and still sort of kind of got away with it and ended up with, with a, a bit of Ireland and, and 500 quid a year, which... I suspect in the circumstances could probably be considered a result for him. It's what strikes me. It's how they try and hide the crown jewels. They haven't thought through the fact that they're mm. going to try and steal a crown, a scepter and an orb. And they need to stash them somewhere. And it's just kind of got that farcical element of, well, the scepter's too long. Well, okay, let's, let's just file it in half. But I was going to say, I suppose as well, once you've stolen them, I and mean, what do you do with them? You know? I know, it's not like no one's going to notice, is it? Yeah, who are you going to try and flog them to? Probably, they're probably worth 40 shillings in scrap. You know, that's it's not like there's eBay, is there, where you can try and offload it? Yeah. To be perfectly honest, shove it down your trousers is a maxim that I've lived much of my life by and it's never really failed me yet. So, you know, <laughs> fair, fair play to him, I say. Uh, but no, thank you, Zach. That was good. Uh, right, let's go to James. Um, I'm going to need a bit of time because Zach actually took my one. So no I'm way. To do... <laughs> yeah, I conf I confirmed uh, it to you last week, Alex. Did you? So oh, yes. Oh bugger! Sorry, James. Um, this, so I'm this having to do exactly some... the same, but change the name to Sergeant Timpson or something like that. 
No, 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 I'm having to do some research now. Another one because I screwed him over massively by not paying attention. Alina. Yes, I am here. Sorry, that was a bit of a delayed reaction. Go on, This one I did check. No one else had nicked. Okay, cool. That's so good. So I'm going to take you back to the 1930s. Great time to talk to you about New York. We all love a bit of New York. It's June 1932, and Tony Marino owns a speakeasy establishment. Problem is, he's really desperate for money. So, along with four acquaintances, they agree to murder someone and collect the life insurance. So, the idea was to get a drunk to drink himself to death, and again, yeah, collect his life insurance. So, they choose Michael Malloy, who is a homeless Irish immigrant. Sorry, Irish people really sorry okay he was an alcoholic and basically he would drink himself till he basically passed out so what they did is they took out life insurance on him and he was given unlimited credit in the speakeasy so basically he would drink and drink and drink at all points of the day i love that andy just nodding like yeah well you would (laughs) (laughs) go on so the slight problem is there is no problem with his health at this point. So they're kind of stumped and thinking, right, okay, what have we got to do at this point? So they decided to add antifreeze into the alcohol. So Malloy basically passes out, but the problem is he wakes up and he asks for more. So the antifreeze has done pretty much shit. So instead they decide to use some turpentine added to the alcohol And again, he wakes up and nothing has happened. So they decide to change to coarse liniment. And again, he wakes up and nothing happens. By the way, does this sound something at the moment? I was about to say, (laughs) does this not sound familiar to you right now? Because (laughs) (laughs) this is I was reading this, I was like, wow, that is so Rasputin. Anyway, sounds like any other night out in Southampton. So basically, they then decide to stick in rat poison. Now, come on, you're thinking at this point, if they've put in rat poison, this has got to end him. But you will be wrong. This does not end him. Again, he wakes up and he asks for more alcohol. Then they try oysters soaked in wood alcohol. Do you think this ends him? No. No, it does not end him. So then they try, by the way, I've got a list of this. Then they try a spoiled sardine sandwich with metal shavings in it. (laughs) This does not end him. So then, listen to this one. So they decided then to freeze him to death. It's a cold winter night, minus 25 degrees centigrade or 14 degrees. Minus 14 Fahrenheit for our American friends. After he's passed out, they carry him to a park, they dump him, they pour five gallons of water on his chest to make sure this guy is dead and will freeze to death. No. They shows up the next day <laughs> and starts drinking all over again. This does not end. They then decide to run him over with a taxi. He's hospitalised for three weeks with broken bones. After three weeks, he walks right back into the speakeasy. (laughs) But wait for it. 
finally, finally, on the 22nd of February, 1933, they joined the guess. Rolling Stones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they stick a gas hose or a petrol hose in his mouth, and basically he dies from that. So they base they collect the insurance money, but there's a problem. Rumors start going around about Mike the Durable. The insurance then contact the police. Malloy's body is exhumed, and all five men are convicted. One gets a prison sentence, and the rest get the electric chair. So there we go. Michael Malloy, the man who was more difficult to kill than Rasputin. Mother of God. Oh, I feel like we've heard the winner. Can I, before the judges get involved, Kit, as our chemistry uh, consultant on History Hack, or the only person that knows anything about the periodic table in this book, <laughs> Uh, oh, talk about talk to us about the uh, the complexity of all the chemicals that are swimming around this guy by the time they finish. What are the odds of surviving all that? I mean, I mean, it depends on the dose. The dose makes the poison, but not high is the simple answer. <laughs> Do you not think high enough. Backfire? Do you think at some point, if someone had like cut his head off or fucking I don't know, doused him in holy water, they might have had more luck because nothing seems to work. Yeah, it's. Mad, isn't it? It's, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to count down the, the different chemicals you've got in there. Okay, so okay, Alina, so, give them the list. So yeah. the chemicals are antifreeze, turpentine, okay. horse liniment, rat poison, oyster soaked in wood alcohol, a spoiled sardine sandwich with metal shavings, and then obviously the freezing, running him over the taxi, right. and then the petrol. The one that bothers me the most is the rat poison and the metal shavings because rat poison is warfarin, which means your blood can't coagulate. Mm. So when you put metal shavings in there, you cannot stop the bleeding that is shredding his insides. That's going to be gross. Yeah, but yeah, they've, been, they've been cushioned by a spoiled sardine, don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this one. Alina, you've excelled yourself this week. Johnny, any questions? Um, oh, thank you. I'm not... I'm not. Um, I'm not entirely sure they, they were stupid. It's just they, they keep. They seem to have just come up against Keith Richards' granddad. Yeah, <laughs> just an utterly indestructible man. I, my, I love that Mike the Durable is such an understatement as well, isn't it? Of a nickname. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes, any questions? Not really, but I noted that you know the antifreeze, terps, liniment, and rat poison is the probably the best the, the base ingredients of a Wix cocktail if ever one existed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think he was lucky, basically. I just mm. thought that what he already had just wrecked his insides so much that like literally nothing could take him down. He's but also, to get, if you go back to the spoiled spoiled sardine sandwich with metal shavings, they obviously thought that the spoiled sardine element on its own wasn't enough, and neither was the metal shavings. So to be on the safe side, we'll put the two together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah, as if like the sardines aren't bad enough, let's amp it up a bit. It's mental. I love him. I think he's great. I would love to do a cocktail uh, in honour of Mike the Durable. <laughs> I, mean, I love it. <laughs> let's have a break. Let's go get some more drinks, and then we'll reconvene and hear the rest. Right. So while we've been away, Kit being a scientist, has been having a think about the state of what Mike the Durable would have looked like by the time they finished with him. And it's not a pretty sight, is it? No, it would have basically shredded him. I mean, I was just looking. So anti-3s, you've got ethylene glycol, which is sort of known as a sweet poison, but it leaves crystal residue and shreds your kidneys. 
So any kind of bleeding is going to basically, just, all his organs would have been melted. The, the state of his body must have been disgusting. I mean, he was basically a zombie at one point. Yeah, yuck. Right, let's move on. James has got a new one. I'm really sorry, James. I didn't pay enough. <sighs> yeah, it happens. Um, so he's going to laugh at Polish people, aren't you? No, that'll be the answer, though, because this is actually better than the Polish one. So, oh, um, on. yeah, hopefully it'll be as funny. Okay, I've gone with Sarah Wilson, the fake princess. Go so, tell us about her. Basically, a bit of background about her. She was born in a village in Staffordshire in the West Midlands in 1754. So a local ass to where I'm from. Daughter of a bailiff. At 16, she left for London, probably to seek employment and maybe be famous. Uh, she was extremely fortunate because she was employed as a maid by Caroline Vernon, a lady-in-waiting to Queen Charlotte, who was the wife of George III. So as her servant, she saw many opportunities of the Queen herself and about life at court, blah, 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 so to speak. Eventually, she decided to take advantage of the situation and enrich herself. So one day, while she was all alone, she decided to go into the Queen's closet in the cabinet, steal jewellery, rings, miniature portrait of the Queen, one of the Queen's dresses at least. We don't know the exact reason she went to commit it, but it's speculated that she was just envious of all the luxury around her that she couldn't enjoy. And she thought the Queen wouldn't be aware of the loss. Unfortunately, the Queen was, because the Queen liked to count all her valuables at the end of the day, every day. Really? And yeah. <laughs> so expecting the thief to strike again, she had her closet watched. True enough, several days after the first bet, Sarah returned to steal from the same place and was caught red-handed. Charged with theft and the violation of royal, piracy, uh, royal privacy, her sentence was death, though through her mistress's intercession, she was reduced. the sentence was reduced to transportation i.e. being sent to the colonies to serve her sentence. And this, this crime will carry on, hence I'm going on. Anyway, when she was sent on a prison ship to then, uh, to the States, she went to Baltimore, Maryland. She was sold into slavery to a William Duval at Bush Creek. Almost immediately, however, she was able to escape, and then she begins her life as an imposter. She adopted the persona of Princess Susanna Caroline Matilda of Mecklenburg Strelitz, the sister of Queen Charlotte. Now, somehow, she'd managed to keep nearly all the stuff she stole from the Queen. And she claimed she'd been forced into exile in America as a consequence of a scandal and a family quarrel. So she managed to keep the dress, the miniature portrait, the ring, a few other things. And she used her knowledge of court affairs to make her impersonation much more convincing. She ended up invited to the various homes of Virginian gentlemen, many plantations, many suitors, that sort of thing. Some curious to meet her, while others hoping to obtain favours or a marriage or whatever, when she was restored to her rightful position in England. This went on for quite a while. And eventually, people started to get suspicious. For example, she didn't speak German, and she didn't speak German around the people she was with, and if she was a German princess, she would have known it. And she refused to speak the language. Eventually, 
the guy who brought her, um, so technically her owner, he um, figured out that she was Princess Susanna. So he circulated advertisements claiming she was an imposter, promised a reward to anyone who captured her, sent an employee of his, Michael Dalton, to track her down. And he eventually he did and took her back to Duval at gunpoint. She was forced to work, but immediately began plotting her escape. Eventually, she escapes again, um, as when he went to fight his militia in the American War of Independence. She escapes. She marries William Talbot, an officer in the Light Dragoons, possibly continued living in America and eventually settled down, and then she disappears from history. So it's all this long list of weird crimes where she manages to get caught, but somehow keeps all the stuff she's stolen, then becomes an imposter princess for a few years, and still manages pretty much to get away with it because she manages to escape. A lot of, she's my hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's just that right. she managed to convince all these people as well that she was a princess that just baffles me, which makes me think they're probably thinking with their royal orbs and not their pets. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> also as well, don't claim to be a German princess if you don't speak German. It's uh, right, go gentle on him, guys, because he had about five minutes to get this ready. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, I, I, I don't really believe this one, I have to say. Um, I, I, don't, I don't believe that if you went through the justice system in the 18th century, you'd somehow be able to not only go through the court, then, in, then the prison part, and then get on a prison ship and keep hold of a dress and rings and everything else. I mean, one ring, possibly, but everything else... Seems a bit dodgy to me. I noticed from a quick Google as well. Um, everyone, yeah. says she come, she said, everyone says she comes from a village in Staffordshire, but nobody can really name it. Are you getting uh, argumentative because you're from Staffordshire? Well, I, I, wondered if, <laughs> I Googled it because I come from a village in Staffordshire, and I wondered if it was the one that I come from. But it, Well, nobody knows where it is, sort of thing. And then the fact she then sort of disappeared from history, it sounds more like a really great story to me than something that probably actually happened. Yeah, I was hoping it was real, and it's from what I can see it is, but at the same time, I did have like five minutes after being absolutely screwed over. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I suppose that, that having all the stuff that she stole could have been, you know, embellished, exaggerated. Potentially, but yes. Yeah, yeah I think she was given a lot of stuff when she was at these plantations as well. I think fair play to her. I think she's a legend. Johnny, any questions? Um. Yeah, I, I think if she did actually exist, and I, I'm, I'm with with my fellow judge here as as to whether that's actually the case or not, um, she actually sounded like she was quite canny. Um, yeah, it's 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 stretching it's stretching credibility a little bit. Um, I, th I think if if, if we're, we're trying to pin stupid on her, then yeah, impersonating German princess and not speaking German, probably pushing it a little bit there. Um, yeah, an, an intriguing one. Um, more than anything else um it would, be, it would be interesting to read a little bit more about it because we've, we've just had her introduced into the um into the equation but um yeah there's there's, there's a degree of healthy skepticism here i feel i'll tell you what james because you did get screwed uh have a little look while the rest are doing theirs and what see if you can come up with any evidence as to her existence so you can vindicate your choice yeah yeah i'll have a look cool. have a look all right uh, right, and in the meantime, we will move on to Beth. 
Right, I'm ready. Go okay. for it. Right, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the story of Martha Lowenstein. Um, she was born in 1904 in Vienna, and by the time she was 19 in 1923, she had managed to find herself in the position of being a ward of a older gentleman. There were some insinuations that they were actually just, they were lovers as well. Um, he changed her, his will to leave Martha lots of money and his property in the woods near Vienna. Within a month, he was dead. Funny that. Strike number one. Two months after that, she marries, marries a student by the name of Emil Marek. Now, the two, they were married for two years. Within the two years, well, they were married for longer, but by the time they'd been married for two years, they'd spent all the money that had been left to Martha by this older old gentleman and they needed to get some money the ventures that they'd done hadn't been successful um emil was a bit of a you know he was a jack of all trades master of none kind of situation um nothing wrong with that (laughs) they had no money and they needed to they needed to get some some money quite fortunately well unfortunately for emil he lost his leg in an incident where he was chopping wood. Fortunately, they'd taken an insurance policy out. Now, the, inc- the incident happened on June the 25th, 1923. The insurance policy had been taken out on June the 24th. <laughs> oh, Another no. strike there. The insurance company were not, they were suspicious. Well, when is an insurance company not suspicious anyway? And they didn't think that something was quite right. They thought, this isn't all adding up. We need to get to the bottom of what's going on here. So they sent out some forensics experts with Martha and Emil and examined Emil's leg. And they determined that the wounds to his leg could only have been done by self-mutilation. What they think has happened is that Emil was so devoted to Martha and he, she told him to chop off his legs so that they could get money from an insurance policy. And he did it. He cut off his own leg so they could get some money. Oh, Emil. Which is, (laughs) I think that's just astounding. Anyway, the insurance company refused to to pay out and actually um, took them to to court as well for insurance fraud. Um, Martha managed to wangle her way out of it. They spent... hardly any time in jail beforehand um they they were acquitted of fraud the public the general public in austria were actually on their side because they thought the insurance company was making it all up um and they spent hardly any time being punished for this whatsoever fast forward then a little bit they eventually come out of jail emil dies quite unexpectedly in 1932 july 1932 um, he was sickly anyway, and it was passed off that maybe it was the continuation of maybe the, the leg wound not healing properly, but he died quite quickly afterwards. Within a couple of months, their daughter died as well. Martha's aunt felt so sorry for Martha that she made Martha the heir to her will, and then she died as well. <laughs> Are we seeing a pattern emerge here? There's another one as well. She then 
to bring in some income, as it were. Martha then has tenants. She manages to persuade one of her tenants to take a life insurance policy out in Martha's favour. And she dies as well. Now, the tenant's family, finally there's someone who's thinking, hang on a second, this isn't quite right. Uh, Martha's family, not Martha, the tenant's family file charges. An investigation takes place. All of the bodies are then exhumed and they are all found to have rat poison in their system in their, the, that has killed them. While she'd been in prison waiting for her fraud trial, she had actually been put in the same cell as quite a notorious poisoner who used rat poison to kill people. So she must have taken it from there. She then, again, this woman just, she completely astounds me, tried for various murders. She faked various illnesses that she had epilepsy and needed to be carried in by, um, in, into the courtroom and have a special chair made for her. She was um, convicted on the charges and sentenced to death on the 19th of May 1938 but she thought she was like sitting pretty a little bit in Austria generally at the time um it wasn't women if they had the death sentence passed on them it was usually commuted to hard labor or life imprisonment however this is 1938 now the modern historians will know what the Nazi what the Germans did in 1938 with Austria So now the Germans were calling the shots in relation to the justice system and in between the time of her being convicted and then potentially having this sentence commuted to hard labour, the Nazis had come in, the Germans had come in and they had a completely different system whereas in if you were found guilty of a crime that passed the death sentence, you had the death sentence carried out on you. So her final blow she thought she might get away with it. She thought she might have life imprisonment, but no. On the sixth of December, nineteen thirty-eight, she was executed by guillotine. And that uh, is the story of Martha Lowenstein. <laughs> it's about time, really. By the end, isn't it? Um, I love this one. <laughs> Can I just say, at least yeah. she managed to get the rat poison done. My <laughs> guys were just like <laughs> the, yeah. uh, the wrong dosage. So, yeah, yeah. this is true. Uh, Dyer, any questions? Uh, it's intriguing. There, there, there seems to be sort of a degree of competence to her, her misdemeanours. You know, she mm-hmm. she was um, she was clearly reasonably good at what she did. Um, getting your husband to chop his leg off—that's that's a good one. I, you know, I think there's probably most men would, would struggle to, to put the bins out when their wife wives ask. But it's um, <laughs> yeah, apparently it's, he was completely devoted to her. But I think the, the chopping the leg off one makes sense because A, you get the money from the insurance payoff and then going forward, you're saving 50% on shop, sock and shoe costs. So. <laughs> yeah. So they've got the insurance, us. right? No, that, oh, that's another thing. Um, I forgot about the, when, the, when they were acquitted of fraud, the insurance company settled out of court and they still got the money. No way. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. See, I, I think she was, she, she was a reasonably canny soul on, on, on the face of it. Um, yeah, no, no, no further questions. Thank you, Beth. That was good. Stunned everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when you first started off, I was thinking this all sounds a bit Anna Nicole Smith, but I don't think she ever got anyone to chop a leg off or actually poisoned anyone, did she? Uh, not to my knowledge. She just waited for the guy of old age, didn't she? Yeah, I think so. And then, would it, so if the, if the Nazis hadn't annexed Austria, she wouldn't have got the death sentence? Basically. Wow. My understanding, which. Is, I think for me, that's the biggest thing of all. You know, maybe if she'd done a murder in a couple of years earlier, she might have got away with it. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it can't be that much of a surprise that the Nazis wanted to kill someone, you know, once they'd taken control. But, well, yeah. no. No, this is true. Uh, well, right, I like that one. <laughs> She's fucking... Although she, she's disturbingly competent for quite a while, isn't she? Yeah. Uh, let's go to Clive. The story I'm going to tell is a complicated one. And I apologise for that, but it's the complexity of it that makes it stand out as the certain winner of this category. Tony Murphy, when he was being cross-examined at his trial, was asked, do you regard yourself in taking part in a stroke of genius or in something criminal? And he responded, a stroke of genius, sir. Unfortunately for him, his conviction meant that it wasn't a stroke of genius, but it was an extraordinarily convoluted and complex way to achieve absolutely nothing. Tony Murphy tried to beat the bookmakers. Tony Murphy was a builder from Cork, and he, tried, he came over to England to try and screw money out of bookies. We tried it once using a fairly simple but quite clever method. That is that the odds on horses, if you bet on a double, don't influence the starting price. So if you bet on two horses to win and the money gets accumulated from one horse onto the other, if both of them win, because of the lack, the, the chances of two horses winning when you bet on them are relatively low, it doesn't influence the odds of typical um, win bets that are placed on each and every horse. And if you withdraw the first horse from a race, the money all goes on to the second horse, but the odds aren't affected. And he tried this, but it failed. It failed because the second horse, the one that actually ran, didn't win, which was a little bit of a problem. So he went back to the drawing board and came up with a very convoluted way to make sure that he did win. And there are so many moving parts to this, it's brilliant. The first thing is he needed a gang of people. He didn't go out and get a gang of crooks or anything like that. He got a gang of very established, decent Irishmen. They included the superintendent 
in charge of the police in Bantry. Um, the son of one of the kind of big lords of Irish repute, who was the head of an international body at the time. Um, they included all sorts of good racing people and absolutely non-criminal people, but it needed a lot of them. And what they did was they got hold of a horse called Gay Future, which was a four-year-old horse, which they trained in Ireland in Limerick. And then they got a horse which looked exactly like Gay Future. And they sent the second horse over to England, calling it Gay Future. And that horse was absolute rubbish. And they put that horse out to run a few times and it came absolutely nowhere. And then they entered Gay Future in the bank holiday, August bank holiday meeting at Cartmel in Cumbria in 1974. And there was a reason they chose Cartmel as well. But before they even got to that far, they also entered two other horses in two other races in different parts of the country. But those two horses never left their stables and were withdrawn from the races just before the off in each case. Sorry, my glasses are now falling apart as I'm talking, so this is getting awkward to read. But just uh, two days before the race, Gay Future was shipped over to England and the horse box with the trainer's name on it left the stable yard in England where Gay Future was meant to be, but it left there empty. And somewhere just off the M6 in the Lake District, they whipped Gay Future out of one horse box and chucked him into the other one, and off he went to Cartmel. Cartmel was chosen because it's in Cumbria, which is a long way away from anywhere if you've ever been there, and it wasn't connected to the blower. And the blower is the telephone system that bookmakers and others use for passing results around. There was one public telephone on the racetrack, and that was all. That was the only method of communication. And that was frightfully important for what they were trying to do. So having got the right horse into the, um, to the race course, they then switched jockeys. They originally had um, the horse that was meant to be ridden by a very obscure, not terribly good young jockey. And they switched him for Ireland's top amateur jockey at the very last moment, thus giving him a far better chance of winning. They also had somebody go and rub soap suds, soap powder, into the horse to make it look as though it was sweating up before the race. And so when the horse went round the paddock sweating up really heavily, looking as though it had a Santa Claus beard, apparently, because they put a little bit too much on, nobody on course was betting. And the way in which odds are done for horse racing is you take the on course, what the bookmakers are showing on course as the odds. While all of this was going on, the gang were together in London at the Tara Hotel, and they each had an A to Z, because in those days we didn't have Google Maps or smartphones. So they each had an A to Z, and on each of their A to Zs were a number of book, bookmaking shops marked. And they literally spread out like a starburst across London, going into every bookmaker shop, putting on bets, trebles each time, or sometimes doubles, on either both or one of the horses that wasn't running, and then Gay Future. And the bets were all 10 or 15 pounds. And they laid out 
thousands of pounds in this way. One person in a bookmaking shop got a little bit concerned and thought something's going on. And so the bookmakers took immediate action and they immediately went to the other two race courses where the other horses were running and started laying money on those horses to try and reduce the odds of those horses. But those horses were never going to run anyway. And then they tried to do the same to Cartmel, except there was only one public telephone in Cartmel and one of the gang was sitting talking to his mum on the public telephone. So they got a motorcyclist to get on his motorbike and zoom up to Cartmel on an August Bank holiday Monday to put money on heavily onto Gay Future. Unfortunately, because it was Bank Holiday money, Monday and because he had to drive through the Lake District, the motorcyclist got held up and didn't get there till after the race had gone. And so the race took place. Gay Future stomped home and they thought they were into good times, except by then, obviously, People had worked, the bookmakers had worked out that something was on. Someone made a phone call to the stable where the other two horses were meant to have come from. And a stable lad in ignorance said, oh, yes, the horses are still here. They haven't been out all day, which gave rise to suspicions that something very dodgy was going on. And the consequence of that was the bookmakers refused to pay out and called in the police. And the police investigated. And the investigation went on for quite some time. There were um, various things happened, including at one stage, the IRA decided to get involved in order to try and extort part of the winnings and made death threats against the detective leading the case. But they went for trial at Preston Crown Court and the judge was Mr. Justice Caulfield, whose two sons were at prep school with me. But that's by the by. He was a racing man and he really didn't like the idea of these poor racing fellows being, um, being brought, had criminal charges brought against them. And he bent over backwards to try and tell the jury not to convict. But the jury convicted. So the judge gave two very, very lenient sentences. And, but as a consequence of the conviction, the bookmakers were able not to pay out. And so after going through this entirely complex, contrived method of screwing the bookies, they got absolutely nowhere. And I'd just say that the reason I know about that case was my old man um, was for 34 years a detective at Scotland Yard, and that was one of the last cases he did before his retirement, and he got the conviction. Oh, and he had a good laugh in the process as well. Oh, there was, uh, my father, actually, rather, unlike me, my father was a great storyteller. And some of the stories he told about that particular case and some of the things that happened were spectacular. But it also at the time, we had a holiday home down in West Cork, very close to Bantry, which was very awkward because the local police superintendent was under investigation. And it was also got more awkward when my father got death threats made against him by the IRA, which was a little bit uncool in those days. Yeah, Andy, you said there's a film about this. There is a film about it. It's called Murphy's Stroke. And Piers Brosman played the trainer. It was, came out in 1980. It wasn't actually a film. It's more, it was a Thames television programme, and it's currently available on YouTube. Excellent. Doing the Irish proud there, Dorman. <laughs> there was one other story of my father's that I did think of bringing up because of what I talked about last week. And that was going back into, I think, either the late 40s, early 50s, where he 
investigated the break into a factory. And when people can, um, break into places, they get nervous. And sometimes that nervousness expresses themselves by enforced bowel movements, which is what happened to this poor burglar. And so he had to relieve himself in the corner. And then being a kind of decent chap and not having a goose to hand. Yes. <laughs> to wipe his bottom with. And the only thing he had was his pay packet, which he utilised and kindly left behind, which then became exhibit number one in his trial. Brilliant. Holmes, any questions? No, uh, not, not really. I mean, I, at one point I was sort of hoping they'd won. And then Clive, told them, Clive had a nice touch at the end about it being the last case his dad worked on. So I, I sort of think, you know, I don't feel that strongly about it. But in terms of the... The horse racing people that got involved, were, were, that, did, were they all completely in on it or were some of them just innocent participants? I think the jockey who rode was a fairly innocent participant. Um, you know, the trainer involved got banned for 10 years afterwards and, and got convicted. Um, you know, a lot of them were just kind of lads who liked to go for a... They, you know, I'm sure they went to Cheltenham every year and had a good time there. It's that, that type of Irish lad who likes to go and enjoy his racing. Some were more involved than others. But did they all have knowledge of the conspiracy? Or did some of them oh, just... Yeah. Oh, well, all, of the, all of the guys with their A to Zs running around London knew exactly what they were doing. Yep. Okay. Brilliant. Dial? Gay, Gay Future itself broke its neck six months later and was put down, which was oh. a sad ending to the story. Yeah, no, oh, everyone will hate this story now. Kind of a dead animal. <laughs> dead horse, no. Yeah. He, he, wasn't, he surely broke his He wasn't found with a, with a spoiled sardine sandwich and metal filings inside it. No, and, and <laughs> nor, nor did his head appear on someone's pillow. <laughs> <laughs> so I have um, questions. It, it's sort of... I love the complexity of it. it it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'd... I'd, I'd not not been aware of the full story, but I'd certainly heard of Gay Future before. Um, it's um, it, it's sort of got an air of Scooby Doo about it. There's almost you know kind of Fred pulling the pulling the mask off the horse and going, but this is Gay Future. <laughs> it's um, it's all just a little bit bizarre. Um, and there was there was part of me going, yeah, I kind of wish they got away with it because it's 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 quite a clever scam. Um, so yeah, there is a sort of a does it fall into the definition of a stupid crime? I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely certain, but it, it's certainly very ingenious. Yeah, um, in many ways, it's the opposite of stupid, you know, compared except, to whatever. Except they spent a lot of time and effort to get absolutely nothing. They should have been getting about 300,000, and they didn't. Mm. Yeah, the fact that they got it, caught it, as well. It fell, yeah. apart on de it fell apart on details. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. No, intriguing. Thanks, Clive. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, James, have you vindicated your choice yet? Um, there is some evidence to suggest it's real, but there is some conflicting evidence that suggests the story in England is different. But um, there are newspaper reports and gentleman magazines and stuff from America, which from the time, which seem to vindicate the story. The only differences I can find is possibly... She was actually born in London and she was sent to the colonies for stealing the clothes of a Mrs. Davenport. But before that, she used to do the royal per, um, being an imposter of royalty 
wandering around the country because there was also a report in Wiltshire in 1767 that she seems for some time to have been travelling around the, com uh, the country using various titles, etc. And it seems she carried this on in America. The only other difference I can find as well potentially in America is that instead of being dragged back into slavery, she actually used her ill-gotten gains to buy herself out of slavery. That's the only differences I can find. But there are newspaper reports which seem to back this up from the time, from the 18th century. Thanks for that. Um, right, do you feel a little bit better about that now? one now, judges? I'm not massively convinced. I can see Johnny's, from Johnny's face, he thinks... It's, 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 the old, it's in the newspapers, it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, definitely, there's definitely the advertisement for... Um, the slave owner wanting her back and with the name she was using and the description of her. So I, I, there is at least that, but... I okay. think there is probably elements of it are true. I, I think the bit where it obviously falls down is the fact she took a dress on that she'd stolen and all of the other stuff. I just can't, just can't see that happening. Yeah, it's possibly that something she said herself when impersonating in America as part of her story. So it, that's possibly not true. And the the true thing is that she was more likely, it seems the records show she was transported for stealing the clothes of this other woman. And she was actually born in London or something like that. And she used to do impersonations there. So that seems to be more fitting, but that just makes her more badass that she managed to do it in the UK, then managed to do it in America as well. So I do have to say, yeah. I do quite like her. Um, right, okay, let's move on to Kit. Okay, uh, so I'm going all in on this one. If you think science is boring, prepare to have your socks blown off. Um, <laughs> there's a, there is a lot of stupid crime in this, so I'm going to skip a lot for time. But just to give you the charges, they are arson, bigamy, blackmail, bomb-making, death threats, devil worship, espionage, fraud, incest, kidnap, witchcraft, and grand theft boat. I fucking love is, this already. And that is before <laughs> I get to the sex, the drugs, and the indecent exposure. Johnny's like, gold. So, Marvel Whiteside Parsons, better known as Jack Parsons, was a bit of a strange chap. He was born to a very wealthy family in 1914 in California, and during his teens, he had two pen pals. One was the Nazi rocket designer Werner von Braun, and the other was the British occultist Alistair Crowley. And that tells you everything you need to know about Jack Parsons. He likes explosions and sex magic. During the day, he tries to send rockets to the moon. At night, he masturbates and tries to summon the devil. Um, he was expelled at Standard school. Standard Saturday. Yeah. He was expelled from school for blowing up toilets. He never got a university degree. But by mid-1936, he had formed what was known as the Suicide Squad with friends at Caltech who were also into blowing stuff up. They were told they were too dangerous for the campus and to go off and work in a place called Galsit. And that is the start of what eventually becomes NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and is now recognized as the founding moment of the US space program. During this time, he meets his wife, Helen, but he very quickly realizes he's more interested in his wife's teenage sister, Sarah, who he calls Betty and who Crowley insists is a vampire. Um, he begins claiming her as a second wife in 1941 as he thought it, quote, uh, combined adultery and incest to serve as a magical confirmation. 
Uh, Sarah gets pregnant uh, but par uh, with Parsons, but has an abortion, which of course was illegal at the time. Um, and eventually he, Helen, Sarah, and a bunch of other Thelema fans move into a mansion in Pasadena in California, which they call the Parsonage. It quickly becomes half chemical lab and half sex cult. Uh, he had a statue of Pan in his bedroom. There was the ritual slaughter of animals. There were reports of pregnant women <laughs> leaping through fire in the back garden, all that kind of stuff. It evolves into this 24-7 orgy, try to summoning banshees and poltergeists and demons. Uh, Parsons wrote a poem, I hike Don Quixote, I live on peyote, marijuana, morphine, cocaine. I never knew sadness, but only a madness that burns in my heart and my brain. Um, he is also on amphetamines and mescaline. Uh, just to get oh through the Oh shit, with that poem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, throughout World War II, Parsons builds rocket-assisted planes for the U.S. government. So his weird sex cult is basically tolerated as long as it doesn't affect national security. But he keeps turning up hungover and tired for work, and, and he keeps chanting black magic prayers when he's launching the missiles. So in 1944, he gets kicked out of the company and he loses his security clearance. Uh, this means he can be a cult leader full-time, and it's at this point a young science fiction writer comes to stay at the Parsonage, called L. Ron Hubbard. Oh no, I can see so, leading now. Uh, Parsons likes Hubbard, and in 1946, they decide to start what they call the Babylon Working. Uh, this was a ritual to summon a scarlet woman that would be immaculately fertilized to create a moon child. Uh, in reality, it was two months where Parsons would spend all day jizzing over magical tablets, listening to classical <laughs> music, with Hubbard watching and scanning the astral plane, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> Hubbard would later claim he was an FBI agent trying to stop one of the US's top scientists from wanking himself to death. Anyway, they end up in the Mojave Desert. Parsons is finally spent. He says, let's go home. And when they get there, they meet this stranger, Marjorie Cameron, who tells Parsons she has just seen a UFO. She just is on their doorstep. Parsons immediately thinks, this is my scarlet woman. He becomes obsessed with her and he sells the house. Now he's done and he's got a devil baby mama. So Parsons has about 20,000 US dollars. And at this point, Hubbard decides to pull a swindle. Uh, Sarah, you know, Betty the vampire woman, mm -hmm. she doesn't get on with the rest of the cult and has dumped Parsons for Hubbard. And they ask Parsons if they can borrow his life savings uh, and they tell him they're going to buy three yachts in Florida and sail them around to California. Just the two of them, three yachts. Um, and Parsons is too obsessed with this Marjorie Cameron. He just gives them the money. Uh, but he mentions it in passing to Alistair Crowley, who tells him he is a weak fool and he is being conned. So Parsons rushes to Florida, uh, only to find out that Hubbard and Sarah have done a runner. Uh, so Parsons does what he does best. He can't send a rocket after them, so he whips his cock out and he starts trying to spunk up a storm. And <laughs> unbelievably, this works. Uh, to quote his diary, Hubbard attempt to escape me at, uh, by sailing at 5 p.m. I performed a full evocation of Bartzible within my circle at 8 p.m. At the same time, so far as I can check, his ship was struck by a sudden squall off the coast, which ripped off his sails and forced him back to port, where I took the boat in custody. Here I am in Miami, pursuing the children of my folly. They cannot move without going to jail. So Parsons takes Hubbard to court to get his money back, and he gets around 10,000 US dollars. He doesn't press any further because Sarah points out to him that when they were having sex, she was actually underage in California and it was statutory rape. So he leaves everything alone. Uh, and after the court appearance, Hubbard and Sarah marry, which is also illegal because Hubbard was already married and it was, in fact, 
bigamy. Uh, Parsons is totally shattered by the whole thing. He goes home, he divorces his wife, and he marries this scholar woman, this Marjorie Cameron. Um, he is briefly accused of being an Israeli spy, and in 1952, he tries to make rocket fuel in his garden shed, and he blows himself up. Um, as I mentioned today, he is recognized as the father of the US space program. They sort of leave out the devil worship bit. Hubbard goes on to write Dianetics, and he have, and Sarah have one kid together, Alexis. Uh, the relationship sours, and in 1951, Hubbard uh, tells Sarah that he's kidnapped their daughter and will kill her if she doesn't come with him immediately. He then sets off with her in the car to try and find a psychiatrist to declare her legally insane. When he can't do that, he lets her go in Arizona, but not before sending a letter to the FBI denouncing her as a communist. Um, he then flies to Chicago, finally gets a shrink to declare her insane, and calls Sarah, telling her that, ha ha, joke's on you, I've taken Alexis, I've chopped her up into little pieces and thrown her in a river. Um, Sarah reports all this to the police, who dismiss it as a domestic spat. Uh, it takes her six weeks to find her infant daughter, who it turns out is alive and well. Um, unsurprisingly, the next year the couple get divorced, and about the same time, Hubbard goes on to found the Church of Scientology. There and you are. Tom Cruise buys everything <laughs> this nutter comes out with. Yeah, best applauding you, well done. Um, also as well, Beth did say, this ain't shit, she went to a Catholic school. So... <laughs> <laughs> uh wow i love it and johnny's face is just like he looks like a little boy who's just discovered porn for the first time <laughs> right uh have you got any questions dyer many i imagine um there, there's there's a shitload to unpack here um yeah. <laughs> hang on johnny before you start just before you start because this might help both of us, but in, in that sort of maelstrom of shithousery and wanking, I don't even know what the crime is that we're supposed to be judging. Well, there are so There's many a lot. crimes in the story. Statutory yeah. <laughs> uh, um, rape, bigamy. Yeah, I was going for the sort of like the nicking of the yachts and saying yeah. that we could take three yachts and sail them around the coast. But I mean, the, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Um, but that is the life of Jack Parsons for you. Yeah, I love that. The, the, they they made three yachts, Holmes, that two yeah, of them were going to drive around. What were they going to do? the last did, one? So, but they did take they did take to sea in a yacht, didn't they? Yes, they actually bought one yacht. Um, Hubbard actually contacts the US government and offers to spy on China for them with his yacht. But in reality, I think they're just going to go around the world and have a jolly. Um, that was always their plan. They were never going to sell them to California. So th Can the we crime there then is that they tricked him out of money for three yachts, but yeah. on one. The, the, they, they, did, they did commit fraud, yeah. They tricked him mm. out, of his, out of his life savings. That I, he knew my, I knew my nine months of doing criminal law would come in handy at one point in the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, where, do, do, where did you first come across this, this chap, Kit? Um, so I, I became very interested in Jack Parsons because he is tied into the history of NASA but he is the one figure they never talk about. They sort of go, and there's this guy, Jack Parsons, who was also there at the start. Um, and the more I found in, about this guy, obviously there is a reason they don't talk about it. There is a fantastic book about him called Strange Angel, um, which has actually been, I mean, they, they tried to make a, um, a series out of it. They made two, two whole series, and they didn't even get to the L. Ron Hubbard bit. This guy is just fascinating. And so that's, that's how I first stumbled on it. Well, I, apologies if I miss it. How did, how did he first um, get in contact with Alistair Crowley? Um, so he was pen pals with him um, at a very young oh, age. Right. He, took, he took an interest in it and he contacted Crowley. And he was 
in regular correspondence with Crowley uh, throughout, um, up until Crowley's death, essentially, in the 1940s. Mm. Um, a lot of, of what we know about, um, about the story is because he would write to Crowley and um, in great depth about what he thought of L. Ron Hubbard and, and all the stuff he's doing. Okay. Um, history's maddest bastard without you know without any question whatsoever um I, I, i'm gonna hand over to mr Hope. i need another beer frankly <laughs> yeah i'm struggling slightly but i'm intrigued by you know what he did um just to, to stop the boat and you know is it me are the rnli like wasting money on boats now then i mean could they just not get a few of the crew to knock one out on the side of the harbor yeah oh, you, the next time there's a boat in trouble uh, next you just need to summon the, the the invocation of mars which is this bartsable um kind of idea that he had uh, but yeah he was very much into sort of you know paganism and black and sort of sex, ma sex magic essentially and yeah he, he used his magic wand on many occasions but, but is there any any historical merit in that i mean there's obviously no scientific merit in it but is there any like cultural merit in or you know so so he gets his stuff from Thelema, which was um he was a member of what's called o2o um and this was basically a, a neo-pagan religion that was started by alistair crowley and he was very much a devotee of that i mean with apologies to john but i'm just thinking sort of you know americans here really <laughs> Well, Americans following a British, a British neo-pagan religion. <laughs> I reckon they might have bastardised it a little bit. They might have exaggerated the masturbatory element of it somewhat, slightly. Uh, yeah, entirely possible. I mean, like I say, this, this Babylon working, it, the Babylon is spelt not as in the city. It's, it's, it's got, a, got a, bit, bit, a bit different. But, uh, I mean, the, the, summer the summer solstice at Stonehenge is pagan-based, isn't it? I've never seen anyone knocking one out there. <laughs> you obviously didn't turn up at the right time, Holmes. <laughs> yeah, do they have a dogging evening? <laughs> Asking for a friend, yeah? They've, they've, the, Na the National Trust closed the car park there some time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I heard, anyway. Oh, brilliant. Um, I love just, it. Just it's as a note, yeah, just well, as a, a quick note, um, I'll stick it on the group, but um, on the subject of Alistair Crowley, there is a fantastic story that a mate of mine wrote a few years ago. Um, about a bank called Eddie and the Hot Rods and a song called Do Anything You Want to Do, which the older, the older generation of us may know. Um, but they basically used um, Crowley's image and put it on the front cover of the single, but sort of slightly took the piss. And it, it just all went horribly wrong for them um, from there on in. Um, so I shall stick the, um, I'll stick the link on and have a read of it. It's, it's a fascinating story. And, and, you know, kind of getting on not quite as mad as... Your man, but um, it's, it's it's heading that way. Oh, brilliant! Um, right, okay, we've reached our last one. You ready, Andy? I have to follow that fucking hell. Sorry, the sex mad rocket engineer just building giant phallus looking yokes in his shed. What that? <laughs> I can't beat that. Fair fucking play, kit. Uh, yeah. Um, Glad to see that the, uh, the the crime week has been so dominated by Irish people. I'm going to continue <laughs> that trend. Um, I was originally going to do the the fourth crusade, but then I decided, arguing, is that a crime? To two lawyers, I've got better things to do on a Wednesday, so I'm going to go for something that definitely is a crime. Uh, but before I get into the main story, this is just a quick one that I came across in my own research. I've got the newspaper clipping here. 
This is from 1730, I think. Thursday night, two fellows made use of the following stratagem to rob a toy shop in George's Lane. They got a live cat and threw it on a woman who was sitting in the shop. And while she, she was disengaging herself from the cat, they carried off some of her goods. So that's your first ever incidence of cat burglary. Um, yeah, that's a pretty shit pun. But the, the main thing I'm going to talk about is the antics of recruiting officers for the French army during the early part of the 18th century. Because these guys were some of the most incompetent army officers you will ever have the misfortune of reading about. They sucked. Um, so, set the scene, I suppose. This is after the Williamite War, the Battle of the Boyne. James II has fled to France. And you're in a situation where Irish soldiers followed him and were also in service in the French army anyway and wanted to keep the Irish homogeneity of their regiments. So they decided to send some of their best and brightest back to Ireland in an effort to recruit Irish soldiers and then take them back to France. Um, now, James II had actually made this illegal while he was still king, and William and then subsequently Anne just went, okay, we're keeping this. Uh, this is a great system. So it was supposed to be illegal. And so they had to do this in a very clandestine sort of way. So this is the story of Captain Luke Ford, um, who was operating in Ireland from 1714 to 1714 over the course of maybe a week and a half. He wasn't very good at his job. Um, so there's a lot of uh, witnesses to the story. Um, one of the key ones is a man called William Carroll, who was a brewer. And the, the other one was a guy called Thomas Harper. Now, Harper is an interesting case because everyone in the community hated Harper because he kept ratting these guys out. Uh, so whenever Harper gave testimony, everyone would like to demolish Harper and say he was a terrible person. But Harper tells the story anyway. That um, So Luke Ford would arrive at a pub, a very specific pub. I can't remember the name of it. And he would sit down and he would go, he would go up to people, sit down next to them and tell them that if they join the army, you know, they would have fame and fortune, what have you. But they need to bring, they need to bring five pistols with them because they need to also fund the army because the army's not in very good shape. So step one, can you please pay us to do this job? Not exactly how enlistment tends to go. I'm sure Zach can testify to that. <laughs> then the caliber of men that he's hunting down for this are terrible. So two uh, are mentioned, Taylor and Doran. And these are both described as two fellows of a very mean condition, which is a bit harsh. Um, Taylor and Doran are very skeptical at this idea that this man is going to whisk them off to this lifetime of fame and fortune. So um, our <laughs> Luke Ford, in his wisdom, decides, you know what? Let this food be poisoned if I'm lying to you. And that was enough to convince them. So again, these are not the brightest individuals that you're dealing with here. Um, they're, they're worried that they're going to be carried off to the East Indies. He swears they're not. But so it's all very sort of interwoven in that regard. So he recruits all of these men. He tells them, please go to this place, go to Hoth. We have a boat there. It'll take 200 of you. They arrive, there's 14 of them there. So not even a very successful recruiting bit. So they need to wait for a few more people. So they stay in that local area. By this point, local authorities have figured out that something's up, that maybe someone is conducting these illegal recruitment operations. So the sheriff runs down the road and is going to try and catch these guys in the act of getting on board the ship. 
Um, he reaches the place where the ship's supposed to be and the ship's not there. So the sheriff then turns around and walks home and then bumps into Luke Ford, knocks him to the ground. A book falls out of his pocket with all of the names in it by complete fluke. The guy then picks up the book, reads through it, realizes who he is and arrests him. And then they go off and arrest all the people who happen to be in the book as well. So this is some of the worst sort of army recruiting of all time. And Luke Ford is caught, charged with treason and hanged. It's a bit of a a knobhead. I love it. He's utterly, he's up there for me with that shit pirate we had a few weeks ago. Dyer, any questions? Hello? You're on mute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry. That's that's cool. It's cool. Lockdown (laughs) fever going on there. Um, Not specifically so. that, That does sort of give rise to the slightly incredulous what the fuck face. Um, no, I'm going to pass over to Holmes. Um, thank you, Andrew. I mean, if I compare him to any recruitment consultants in the modern day that I've been dealing with, he seems astonishingly competent to me. So, um, what I was quite intrigued to hear about was that you could only join up if you had five pistols. That's quite a lot, isn't it? Although that's not guns, that's it's a coin. I'm not sure what the conversion rate is. Uh, uh, I, okay. When I first read it, I originally thought it was guns as well. And the, oh my God, the Irish are supplying French. This is my PhD thesis in a nutshell. And then I realised it was money and I got really upset. And then, <laughs> uh, and then uh, one doesn't want to sort of read full stereotypes. But I would have thought, I mean, there wasn't a particularly an alliance between Ireland and France as there historically might have been between Scotland and France. But given that the Irish attitudes, quite justifiably so, to the English, would they have really minded with Irishmen going off to fight with the French? So at the risk of going too deep into Jacobite history here, um, the danger was that the Irish would go to France, receive military training and come back with what they thought were the rightful kings, be it James II, James III, that generation. Um, So they didn't want them to leave and get that military training and then return. Because when you have the Catholic majority being suppressed by a Protestant minority, the Catholic majority are likely to rise up, particularly if there's an invading army. So any efforts that can be made to stop that were um, pretty important, I guess. But then again, it doesn't look like they had much to worry about when they had their ship to take 200 people and 14 turned up. But also, didn't, didn't the ship arriving arouse a degree of suspicion? Oh, it happened all the time. There was loads of smuggling happening off the coast of Ireland. Someone wrote a book about it. I can't remember who. And then what happened to the other the 14 that volunteered? Well, for example, um, Taylor and Doran were just let off because they were considered so utterly pathetic that why bother? Like they, they, they were just not members of society worth dealing with, I guess. Um, they probably received a slap on the wrist, but I don't know. I don't think they were charged with treason. I think treason was reserved for the recruiting officers, at least at this stage. It seems a bit harsh that he was killed as well, really. <laughs> yeah, well, espionage, I suppose, in a way. Or True. I, I suppose that's Darwinian that's... execution going on there. Yeah, he definitely deserved it. Just okay. Nothing. Nothing more from me. Brilliant. What a knob. I love it. Uh, right, okay. Anyone else got any anecdotal ones they want to chuck in? Uh, Alex, I'd like to make a pitch for uh, diversity among our criminal uh, class. Uh, 
in, yeah. uh, and this is this is not a very old one. Uh, it co goes back to 2007, but it involves a robbery of the Agricultural Bank of China. Uh, <laughs> it was a uh, robbery. That we, we've was, all heard uh, this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You why not? I I've, I'm uh, shocked that there's not a statue to these two guys. Uh, the the manager of the bank, uh, it's it's a little out of the way bank in China. Uh, embezzled about roughly twenty six thousand dollars, maybe I don't know twenty thousand pounds or so. Uh, and his his criminal scheme was this: I'm going to embezzle the money and invest that money in a bunch of lottery tickets. And when I win something from the lottery, I'll have enough money to replace what I stole before anybody notices, and I'll keep the rest. So uh, as anybody who's, who's looked at the odds of lottery, they know that that's not a very uh, uh, a favorable bet. But nonetheless, the guy did it, and he won the lottery. Uh, it wasn't a huge lottery, but it was a pretty big lottery, enough for him to replace the money. So he thought, well, if it happened once, it may happen again. So uh, this branch manager, his name was uh, Ren Zhaofeng, uh, got the help of the other branch manager, a guy named Ma Jingjing, and uh, they did the same thing. And then they stole about 4.3 million U.S. from the Chinese bank. They invested it in a massive amount of lottery tickets, but this time they didn't win anything. And so they doubled down. They embezzled another, I think it was about $2 million from the bank again. And then they put it almost all into one day's worth of lottery tickets. And they only ended up uh, recovering about 12700 for their investment. At this point, they're thinking, shit, we, we're not going to be able to embezzle enough to get enough lottery tickets to win, uh, to win enough to replace what we've done. So they took the last of their money, bought fake IDs, and lit out of town. Uh, the, they should have spent a little bit more on, of their, their ill-gotten gains on uh, fake IDs, though, because it wasn't enough to keep them uh, under wraps. Uh, one of them was arrested in Beijing. Another was arrested, I think, like a day or two later. Uh, the two men were charged with embezzlement. And as anyone who knows anything about the Chinese justice system knows, they don't screw around in China. I mean, in China, they will execute you for taking a hit in blackjack on 17. Uh, these two guys, uh, less uh, approximately one year from when they committed the crime, the state newspaper announced that they had been executed in prison. And uh, that was the crime scheme based on the idea of playing the lottery odds. And so I guess mathematically, you could say they were one of the stupidest. But that's my sidebar. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. What was the one you had about the gun shop as well? Oh yeah, yeah. There was uh, there was a, another guy who, and, and this is relative. This is pretty modern too. Um, he uh, decided to rob a gun store. Uh, this was back in 2013. Uh, it was a guy who uh, decided to uh, rob a gun store in Portland, Oregon, using a baseball bat. Uh, he showed up at the at the discount gun sales store in Beaverton, Oregon. He goes up to the case containing a bunch of pistols. He smashes the case with his baseball bat and didn't really think about whether a manager at the gun store might actually have a gun on him. Uh, so he uh, finishes smashing the glass. He's about to grab the 
semi-automatic pistol, and he realizes he's staring at a loaded pistol in the face. Uh, he was not shot. He basically just had to stay there until the police showed up. So it's a it's a twist on the old never bring a knife to a gunfight uh, adage. Yeah, a quite ridiculous one. I love it. We've had some excellent ones today. Um, I just... I love that the most fun we have on this program is laughing at stupid people. Um, <laughs> that's right. Let's go around the room while the judges make up their mind on who the stupidest crime in history all belongs to. Uh, Clive, if you can't have yours, which one are you having? It's a difficult one, but I think it would have to be Elena's indestructible Dave or whatever his name was. Yeah, I think indestructible. No, uh, Mike <laughs> Durable. Yeah, I'm going to. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Durable Mike, yep. That was his brother. That <laughs> calling him Dave because you didn't know. I love it. Uh, it's just my vindication for why there should be a Davosaurus in the dinosaur uh, from the other day. Uh, Zach? I think I've got to go for kits. Just this sex-obsessed rocket scientist is kind of too ridiculous to actually believe he even existed. But I like he, he did, and he was basically the... Yeah, go on. And, and he ends up basically becoming one of the most important people behind NASA. Do you know what I love about him? I love, I really want to picture that as he walked out of university and they booted him out, they went, you'll never amount to anything. <laughs> well, he showed them, didn't he? <laughs> I love it. Uh, Beth? It's still raining there, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think I'll have to agree with Zach. Kitts was just... The phenomenal, I just completely outstanding by what this this guy got up to. You know, it was just and another and another and another and another. So yeah, I think I'd have to be with with Kit on that one. James, I think I know the answer to yours. It has to be Kit because it's just <laughs> it's his whole life was effectively a crime, and also no one's mentioned this yet. But you could also use this as an example to piss off all the Nazi conspiracy theorists about paperclip and all the Nazis in NASA. You could just use the example of this guy as well. <laughs> just to piss them all off. I love it. Uh, who else have we got? John? My vote's got to go to Kit with the uh, magic wand scientist. That sounds like some sort of weird Harry Potter-based porn film. But uh, <laughs> I, I just got to say, that, that one's got it all. Do you know what, though? Not even HBO are touching that for a TV series, are they? Um, they would be, uh, yeah, that's, that's where they differed from the protagonist in, in not touching it. Alina, what about you? Do you know what? I'm going to go for Bethany's uh, lady, because at least she finished the job. Yeah, <laughs> she did get caught eventually, but at least she wasn't a fucking idiot. Is what you're at least she actually did. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the whole, my guys couldn't do it, but her lady could. I mean, it took a woman to do the job properly. Also, as well, this is a woman that convinced a guy to cut his leg off. She must have been good, man. Like you say, my idol in managing to convince someone to cut their leg off. You said that she was, he was completely in love with her, but clearly after that he wasn't completely in love anything. completely anyway. What a schmuck. Alina, you've done you. Uh, Kit. I'm going to go for the Benny Hill crime of Thomas Blood. 
yeah. just for the idea of playing yakety sax. So they're trying to break this <laughs> stature in half and sort of leg it out, and they get hit by a cart and everything. And their answer to everything um, is, "I'll shove it down my pants." I have something to add to that from my research of Thomas Blood as well. Um, it's that when he finally died, he actually died in debt because he slandered someone and he was deeply in debt. But he was released, but he died. They actually had to exhume his body to convince themselves he was actually dead because he'd faked his death so many times before. <laughs> so they had to <laughs> confirm he was dead. So he, like he wasn't trying to get out of his debt that he still had to repay. <laughs> so, what yeah. a knob. Uh, brilliant. Okay, uh, is that every... Oh, and Andy. Oh, I mean, Kit, so close. But for the sheer patriotic vigor that was risen in me by the story of Mike. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> refusing to die. Like, I've never seen an Irishman do the country so proud. <laughs> in America before. Does that, does that not count Westlife, Andy? Well, they can die in a hole. I would rather watch Mike stumble on stage mumbling whatever into Duking a microphone. Up dead sardines. What a hero. What a fucking hero. <laughs> Judges, which way have you gone? Well, it's, it's unanimous. I think, Johnny, shall I do the two and three and then you announce the winner? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Well, so in third uh, is Alina's. We love that. That was very bizarre and quite entertaining. Second, um, <laughs> we think it has to be Kit. We're still not entirely sure what happened in the Kit thing, to be honest. It was, uh, <laughs> in, so, in many ways, it was too busy. You know, there's just, <laughs> in my mind, I've got wanking yachts, storms, a bit of rocket stuff. I'm not sure what order it all, all happens in, but I, I think we're happy to go with it. And it's a bit of a shame they've wiped him out of history because he'd be the ideal candidate to feature in the sort of video that NASA showed new employees on the first day of work. <laughs> what not to do? Want to rise to new heights? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say that Alina's, no one would try and destroy a statue if you put one on my cart, would they? No, totally not. <laughs> um, I, th I think in the first instance, I think I'd probably speak for the group to suggest you need to get Kit back and just do a whole podcast on this guy. Because frankly, <laughs> there's there, there's an awful lot more to, to talk well, about Kit, there, I feel. Yeah. I, I think, week, and I think a, di a diagram would help, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> some, some sort of easy flow chart might be, might be in order. <laughs> well, considering he was the scientist. Next week, mm. so maybe he'll uh, decide to talk about that. It's up to him. Excellent. Um, again, a, 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 super, a superb field of candidates, but we, we were unanimous in, in terms of looking at the definition of stupid crime. We arrived at the conclusion that simply smashing up two thirds of your hall is, is just the definition of stupidity. So Zach and Blood, the winner this week. Well done, Zach. And James. James can share the victory as well. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. I was saying we've... we've yeah. It's not controversial. Now, James. But he, James did win last week, so, you know. That's true. Mm. Count it as a half, James. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to count it as a half. We've got to give him something today after Villa's performance tonight. Because <laughs> <laughs> they got a half, they mm. drew. Did they drew it? They drew yeah. it? Yeah, eighty-third yeah. minute. Oh. 
that still doesn't make it any better. I'd so zoned out by that point. Well, I don't know. The, the, it's really tight down the bottom. There's like three teams on 27, one team on 28, and then... It's one of them Arsenal. Yeah. How, many, how low have they sunk now? Arsenal, I can check for you now. I was actually ele- at the table. Arsenal are 11th now. Yeah, let's have one last chuckle before we log off. Right, guys, <laughs> next week we will be having a slightly different um, down the pub. We are coming to the end of our down the pubs now because real pubs are opening again. But a couple more for you, and that is to round off our greatest Britain. Um, so next week, at the moment, you can vote for your top 30 online. Um, I want to hear, I've already got people moaning at me that there's no ethnic minorities, there's no disabled people, there's only six women. You picked them, people. You had (laughs) weeks and weeks and weeks in which to nominate anyone you wanted to. I could have nominated Bertie the Cat. He's British, if I'd wanted to. (laughs) didn't nominate and you didn't campaign and you didn't vote. I don't want to hear it. Be like Kit. Kit has got Michael Faraday from not even being nominated to being in with a shot. So be like Kit, stop whining. Get on, <laughs> vote. Next week on Down the Pub, instead of judging each other, we will be announcing and outlining for you your top 10 to help you make your final decision. Uh, we'll also be playing devil's advocate, but that's a bit of a surprise. Uh, but the words, roast master general. Have been battered about, and one of our guests is rubbing their hands. Uh, so it's going to be huge fun. So get voting, uh, and we will be letting you know who the top 10 are and trying to help you educate yourself uh, as to where you might want to cast your final vote. And then on our last down the pub, we will announce the winner and probably, what do you reckon, guys? Just talk shit and commiserate that it's all over? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For now. For now. Small debate. <laughs> Do we, do we burn the pub down afterwards? No, because we're going to come no. back. We're going to come back. <laughs> then. Yeah, we need to try all the cocktails Alex is supposed to have made. Oh, yeah, this is true. I am. Mike Malone is going to get a special cocktail as well. You just throw everything in from your alcohol cupboard for that yeah, one. Yeah, literally. <laughs> it, what it is, the recipe for a Mike Malone is everything like the dribble of Shambord from Free Christmas. Oh, stuff, um, from, stuff from your toolkit. Yeah. <laughs> um, WD40 just put it all in a glass and give it, give it some mouthwash and have a swallow and see what happens um, and if you survive you get to call yourself Mike for the night <laughs> Join us tomorrow when Matt Pope will be talking all about Neanderthal people not Neanderthal man you're not allowed to say that and he'll tell you why it's great he covers such an amazing overview of the Neanderthal people. It's really, really interesting. And it's our first shot at prehistory, so give it a go. And then join us on Sunday when Hussein Kamali will be with us to talk all about his incredible book, which is A History of Islam in 21 Women. That is, it's just outstanding. The stories are incredible. I had so much fun recording with him. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, Brad. 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.